here at Knox, we are working through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, piece by piece, and uh, you'll notice that in Acts there are many speeches from the apostles. Um, the reading here is one of the, long, the longest speech in, um, in the book of Acts, which we chose because of its length not to read. So you got the action before, you got the action after, and we're going to look at why? What was it about Stephen's words that incited that sort of response? But as we do that, let's bow forward for a moment in prayer. Join me. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit, our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The last time I preached on this text, on this story of Stephen, was many years ago, and near the end of the message, someone in the congregation stood up and angrily waved their hand at me and shouted their disagreement and stormed out of the church. So I'm wondering what today might bring us. I'll try to be gentle, if you will, too, okay? But I recognize that that very same sort of reaction could happen this morning because that's, in fact, the reaction that happened in this story. The words of Stephen provoked, they stirred up, they troubled people. And so preaching on these words this morning, I realize they may very well have that same effect. And it's not an unusual reaction either because if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, the responses and the reactions to Jesus are never tepid, never sort of, hey, that's sort of interesting, Jesus. The responses to Jesus are always very extreme. They are either people laying down their lives, following Jesus, worshiping Him as Lord and Savior, or they are utter rejection and opposition. They are, get out of here or get me out of your presence or let me kill you. And the same sort of responses happen to the disciples as they proclaim the good news of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and their message either gathers significant crowds of people who are compelled by this message and lay down their lives and say, we are following this Jesus, or, or there's rejection, opposition. So what's going on here? What, what is it? Why is it that those people so violently reject Jesus and kill Stephen here? What was not just the barrier to Jesus, but the offense of Jesus? It's not the character of Stephen himself, because the rejection and persecution of Stephen is not because he's obnoxious, not because he's a really irritating witness at all. In fact, Stephen is described here as someone who's full of God's grace, full of God's power. He demonstrated a wisdom, an uncommon wisdom that few had. He was a compelling, a bright figure, so much so that Scripture tells us that when people saw his face, it was as if they saw the face of an angel. He was radiant. And in spite of all that goodness about Stephen, he is fiercely, violently opposed, which should remind us that even if we have a very graceful disposition and even if you bear witness to Jesus with wisdom and demonstrate power 
people won't necessarily be impressed. If you confess the gospel, in all likelihood, people will turn on you. So what's going on here? Why this strong reaction? Stephen is confronting idols. Stephen is butchering sacred cows here. That's what he is doing. It's interesting, throughout the book of Acts, in the preaching of the apostles, as they talk about Jesus, what they do most of the time first is they confront the idols that people are already worshiping. They're saying, you have given your life, your heart, to something other than the true God. Turn from that. And you see that again and again, Acts 14 in Lystra, Acts 16 in Philippi, Acts 17 in Athens. Paul is, is in his proclamation of Jesus, always deconstructs the idols. That's a long prophetic tradition as they critique the idols that people are bowing down to. And now here in this passage, well, prior to those, Stephen, who's in the, the religious center of Jerusalem, now is confronting and exposing religious idols. Now, before we dive into the story of Stephen, maybe we need to do a little work on the nature of idols and over you. Because most people, when they think of idols, they think of people bowing down to statues of wood or stone. And while that form of, of traditional idol worship still occurs in various places around the world, idols of the heart have this universal application among human beings. It's, it's sort of what postmodern writer David Foster Wallace said. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everybody worships. And the idols we worship may not be statues of wood or stone, but they are anything that we lift up, that we give the most prominent place in our life. They are anything we place at the center of our lives because we think they are going to bring us significance or meaning or satisfaction or happiness or safety. Every person, every culture, every gender, every race, every class has, has a set of idols that they find their deepest comfort in. Some created thing that gets put in God's place. And these can be good things too, like your family, like your job, your career. But when you base your happiness, when you find your deepest identity in those things, you've made them ultimate things. When anything becomes more important to you than God, when anything absorbs and calls for your heart's allegiance and devotion more than God, that, that's an idol at work. So you take a good thing and you make it absolute. It's an idol. So beauty, think of that. Beauty is a good thing. We love it. But when you make it ultimate, when you seek beauty solely as the only criteria for a spouse, when you find beauty is the thing that gives your life meaning and identity, beauty becomes Aphrodite, an idol. When, when reason or knowledge, which are such good gifts of God, these good things, when they are raised to this ultimate place, when they are pursued as the thing that will save and rescue us, like science often does, this good thing of reason becomes 
Athena, an idol. Anything can be an idol. And this biblical concept of idolatry is such a helpful category for understanding all that is wrong in the world, the pathology, the brokenness of our world, because we end up loving our idols. We love them with such a devotion that we will serve those idols no matter the cost. That means we will sacrifice to these demanding idols. And we become so invested in these things that we cannot live without them. And when that happens, you know you're in the thrall of an idol. Now, there are there, there's secular idols, uh, but there's religious idols too, and Christian religious idols as well. And every one of us needs to discern what are those idols that are play in our lives? What are those things that we have raised to some God place that we have given our heart to? Stephen here in this passage is brought before the religious leaders because he's falsely accused. He's been told, you are speaking falsely against the temple, uh, against Moses, against the law of God. You are saying all sorts of things of how this Jesus is going to do away and destroy these things. And Stephen then, in his speech, responds to those charges. But he does so first by deconstructing the idols that he sees at work, the temple and the law, very good things in and of themselves, good things that pointed people to God, but they had become the focus of people's, the Jewish people's allegiance in place of God. They had become religious idols. And just like people who who worship money think that they're just working really hard, People who worship religious idols think they're just really devoted to God, but they're not. They're looking to something instead of God for their hope as something more crucial for meaning and value in their life, and they can look very spiritual, right? They can look so devoted to God when, in fact, their hearts are far from God. That's what Stephen essentially charges all those religious leaders with. Even though they had God's revealed law given to them, the very purposes of God, even though they had witnesses and prophets to speak and address them for God, even though uh, they believe they are so near to God in the temple, they are actually, Stephen says, rebelling against God. Verse 51 to 53, he says, you stiff-necked people. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Here's the danger of those religious laws, uh, religious idols. They have this appearance of obedience, but they're in effect rebellion against God. It's a spiritual performance, but their hearts are far from God. And, And that still goes on among us, among us here, because they're contemporary religious idols too. And they challenge us for the devotion and allegiance of our hearts. If Stephen were here today, he would have something to say to us about our Christian idols. He'd want to have a conversation with me. He'd want to set me aside and say, Phil, you place too much of your heart desires on the success of the church. You've bound up your identity far too much on what the church has to look like and be. You want that more than God sometimes. 
you made an idol out of the church. And he'd be right. What might he say to us, the rest of us? A common religious idol um, in religious communities is this. It's when doctrinal truth gets elevated to the ultimate, when we make it God. When it becomes possible for someone to say, I am saved because of the rightness of my belief, instead of I am saved because of the grace and of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a subtle, subtle, so subtle, but deadly mistake. We can rest the hope of our salvation in the rightness of our doctrine. We become doctrinal Pharisees then. You know, we become dogmatic, closed in our minds, always sure we're right, disrespectful of others, and it breeds this sense of superiority. It's possible for us to make an idol out of truth, offering us certainty, offering us this identity, but it's, it's, it's an idol. Because the gospel says we are saved solely, justified solely by grace. Another common religious idol is morality. When we say the reason God loves me is because I go to church. You know, I'm sold out to God. I give, I pray, I have my devotion. Surely God loves me, right? That's such a very typical religious idol. Finding in our moral record the reason for why God should accept us. Now, being a moral person, a holy person, it's a good thing. God calls us to that. But when we trust in that instead of God, when we trust our virtue, our moral goodness instead of trusting God, it's become an idol. How about one more? Worship. How we worship. Can't that easily become an idol? Can't we find so much of our identity wrapped up in a certain form or style of worship? I've heard people from across the worship spectrum say things like, well, I just can't worship with those songs. I, I can't worship with that type of music. And if you've ever thought that, if you've ever said that or felt that, you need to ask yourself, what am I worshiping? Am I worshiping my preferences or an aesthetic experience, a style of worship? You know, if worship, which is something that is meant to unite diverse Christians in the adoration of the living God of grace, if that turns into worship wars, you know an idol's at work. If we look down on any form of worship, if we feel a style of worship is more superior or truer or more spiritual, you can be certain an idol's at play. Worship is celebrating what God has done for you and I, singing about who he is. It is a celebration of the salvation and the grace that God gives us, the free grace that he offers. And when that reality breaks in and melts our hearts, it frees us from those idols, delivers us from the power of those idols. It pulls our hearts to him. So Stephen here, he's preaching by confronting these religious idols of the day. But you never get rid of idols in your life just by confronting them, by exposing them. You've got to replace them with something else. Your heart is naturally gravitating towards something. It needs something to give itself to. And still, so Stephen here, once he does that, offers an alternative, and it is Jesus. Stephen deconstructs the idols, but then he points to Jesus. He, his whole sermon speech is really a retelling of the history of Israel. But now, 
pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of that very history and all those things that they valued and cherished and treasured, like the temple and the law, saying it is in Jesus who is the actual fulfillment of it all. Think about the temple and its worship. It was, it was a pointer. It was a symbol of the relationship that we were always meant to have with God. Think of the history of, of the temple or the tabernacle. It begins all the way in creation, in the Garden of Eden, because the Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. Genesis 1 and 2, scholars say, are written as a, as a temple scene. So all of creation is actually pictured as a temple in which we are made to worship God where perfect shalom and flourishing and fulfillment are found in that relationship, that communion with God. This was sanctuary. But when humans decided to build our lives on things other than God, we gave, when we gave our ultimate meaning to other things, we lost communion with God. We were shut out of the sanctuary, out of communion with God. Adam and Eve left the sanctuary of God, the presence of God, and, and when they did that, you know, when they turned around, and you know what they saw? Genesis 3 tells us that at the gate to the Garden of Eden, they saw an angel with a flaming sword turning every which way, going back and forth, flashing back and forth, a sword that no one could escape, that no one could get under from, a flaming sword that barred the way to the presence of God into paradise. Now, what's that? Here's what it's about. It's because we had built our lives on things, an idol, and that has caused a rupture. That has caused conflict. That has caused so much death and violence and injustice and poverty. Turning from God, so much of the goodness of, of creation has just unraveled and caused damage. And it's not enough for us to say to God, sorry God, can we get back into communion now? Can we get back into your presence? And you know we can't do that because if you've been wronged, if you've been seriously harmed, right? If there's been a major crime committed and someone then comes to you and says, sorry, can we just let it go? You know, there's something in you that says, no, there's got to be justice done. And if you who have been wronged know you can't just say sorry and that be enough, something more is required, how much more in our relationship with God. Some kind of costly payment needed to be made to put things right. And that's what the flaming sword is all about. It's the sword of justice, of eternal justice. Nobody can get back into that paradise of communion with God unless you go under that sword of justice, unless you pay for what has happened. But who, who can survive that? We'll never get back into the presence of God. That's the question that sort of haunts the whole Old Testament. How do we get back into the presence of God? How do we be in communion with God? And so God, in response, establishes the tabernacle or the temple as a way, as a pointer to the way by which we gain communion back with God. In the middle of the temple, there was a little place called the Holy of Holies. It was this cube-shaped room, and, and there was, in front of it, there was this veil, because behind it was the presence of God. And it was dangerous. Priests would go in there once a year, and they would, on Yom Kippur, and, and they would go in there very briefly, um, and they carried a blood sacrifice because there's no way back into the presence of God without going under that sword. But again, it was just a pointer. And all the sacrifices of the temple and the priests, it was just a pointer. It was symbolic of 
something greater that had to happen. All those sacrifices were just partial. They were pointing to the need for the one who would offer his life. And all the prophets kept on reminding people, there is one coming, the Messiah, who will offer his life, who will go under the sword. There will be a sacrifice that will fulfill what the temple is pointing to. And Stephen preaches, it is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. Jesus came, and when he came, he stood as our high priest. On the night before he died, he is praying, pleading for us. Jesus set himself apart to die for us so that all of us might come into communion with God. This is what he's doing on the cross. He's taking our sins so we get his right relationship with God. He's going under the flaming sword so we get to come back into communion with God. And he did it how? Not by bringing the blood of calves and goats like all those other sacrifices, but the book of Hebrews says, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. This, this is it. This is what the temple has always pointed to. Every, every idol we set up offers us a hope. This will satisfy your life. This will bring you happiness. And it feels compelling to us, but it never delivers because it can't. What it ends up doing is alienating us from others, enslaving us. It leads to injustice, the broken relationships, to anxiety. You know, on the one hand, idols are really nothing. I mean, it's, there's nothing to them. And yet on the other hand, through them, the powers and the principalities, the forces of darkness just grip our lives. Jesus offers the only power to free us from those powers and principalities. He offers what we are desperately dying to find. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not another way to find yourself. It is the invitation to die with Christ so that you might come alive in a whole new way and discover real life and discover what it is most worth giving your life for. This, friends, is the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would take this, this really challenging message of Stephen and that you would apply it to our lives. God, just as Stephen poked and prodded and uncover idols that were hidden to a lot of the people of the day, we pray that you would show us where we have idols hidden away, where something or someone other than Jesus Christ has taken title to our heart's trust, our heart's delight, our life's devotion. God, we admit we, we do this so quickly and easily. Forgive us for our foolishness, for all the, all the ways that we look for blessing and satisfaction and significance in things that are never going to provide us. God, would you turn our hearts to Jesus? Right now, God, would you visibly portray before us the wonder and the love of the, that we see in the cross? May our hearts be melted by that. 
Help us to savor and delight in that sacrificial love of Jesus Christ for us. Help us, help us to love Christ so much more than anything else so that we can finally rest knowing he is all we need. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen.